Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls, and guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast, every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on podcastone.com. It's not what you have. It's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. May 28th, it feels like May 55th. Um, <laughs> this is the PFF forecast. Uh, got some good stuff today. We're going to do, um, we were going to have a guest. It was Thursday guest day, but um, the two that we were planning on kind of got, things fell through. We'll have them next week. Um, so we're going to do the, uh, the AFC North, continue on with some previews. That'll be a lot of fun. We're going to talk O-line, whether O-line coaches matter. And then this is going to be fun. At the end, we're going to, list off some players talk about some players that we irrationally loved and maybe still think have a chance despite the fact that they have no chance <laughs> to be great uh so this will be fun man let's uh let's rock I'm, I'm excited for your list of players to be honest here it's, i feel like we're gonna go you're gonna list five players and i'm gonna have never heard of them because they're gonna be from like yeah. the 70s and 80s i yeah um isn't it amazing that the draft was only a month ago like it feels Same. like it's been, you know, two months, three months, four months ago, but um, nonetheless, I was uh, uh, here. We are. We're we're still what three months until the opening day for college football. Um, so we got a ton to ton to ton of ground to cover. I I was uh, doing a voiceover on the Niners last night, and I was like, I was referencing the Super Bowl. I was like, this feels, you know like it was a it was years ago like it legitimately yeah. is it is a totally distant memory i don't even remember you know it's it's when you go back and you think about uh that point in time i think about some of the things i remember from that trip like all of them involve things i couldn't do right now so uh it's kind of crazy um but hopefully we're moving in the right direction i mean not to not to like belabor the the point but like leagues are going to have to make some decisions here soon right like hockey basketball uh, and baseball so we should have a pretty clear understanding of what the limitations are fairly soon i think well and it looks like you know per usual the betting markets were pretty sharp about some of these things so we talked about what was it you know right when the pandemic started there were some markets uh that i bet into on you know probability basically of starting before a certain date and, you know, June 1st was like, God, I think I laid like minus 400 or something, minus 350. Uh, oh, wow. That things would not start before June 1st. Uh, and then I think 
starting after July 1st was also like minus 130, minus 140, I think. And I, I laid that. <laughs> and then August 1st was actually, if you wanted to go over August 1st, it was like plus 140. So there was like sort of this July, August start date for all three leagues, MLB, NHL, and NBA. Uh, and it looks like we're sort of like getting that. Like, it looks like August 1st is like there might be some leagues that start before that. There might be some leagues that start after that. But it's, you sort of bet the over on all of those. You're looking fairly solid now. But, I, you know, um, one thing that's good for the – Don't you the, dare. Don't you dare start rooting against sports happening. The one, once – well, but, but for yeah, the NFL that. and college football's sake, it's a good thing in the sense that there are going to be first movers ahead of them. Uh, and as we said, they can learn from some of those things. Um, and it even looks like, for example, the WNBA will, will start and, and be uh, abbreviated as well. So, uh, yeah, some good news. As, as What's said. interesting about it um, is that those leagues seem to be considering the bubble thing. And there appears to be no consideration of this from an NFL standpoint. I mean, the NFL is saying we're going to have fans in the stands. Like, that's our plan. And I wonder, we've talked about this a couple of times, I really wonder what's happening behind the scenes. I actually think the NFL has done a great job of pressing forward with things as planned and making adjustments kind of last minute that clearly weren't last minute because they've been, they executed them. You know, the draft is a great example, Um, though I still think they, it was taped. I I still think a large portion of it was taped beforehand. Um, and, and so going forward and saying we're going to do things as normal and not making concessions now allows them to not make, not make wide sweeping concessions that they have to like these dramatic changes until they get there so that they don't have to keep escalating them. And I think that's smart and I hope it works out. My only worry is as it was before that they're not thinking about enough contingencies because if we get there and we there are states that are way behind or stuff like that. That's what worries me. Um, they had they had a long runway here. That was the that was the benefit, the right? Like, and you know the the question is so like let's say the I think the big question is is let's say that a league was completely unprepared for this to happen. What would be the time frame? that a, a league would need to be prepared for it. Cause to, to me, like that sets the worst case scenario for the NFL being like, you know, August plus that many months. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that still means you're probably getting football in this calendar year, even under the worst case scenario. Uh, college football might be a, a lot trickier because it's less centralized and there are more things to worry about, but NFL um, that to me, I think is setting, you know, sets the, the line there. Well, you and we should stop talking about this, but but the idea of college football being like only the blue bloods are playing, and it's I think um, like a you know a a best matchup scenario every week. Like these are great matchups you want to watch every week. Would be really interesting. It would be very interesting to see how things change. Right, like scheduling mm-hmm. could change for other leagues, um, potentially permanently if it ends up for the better. Um, Maybe there will be some innovations on the TV side of things because um, they'll try, have to try new, you know, sound, new things with sound that maybe end up working well. I mean, heck, we could even see 
I wouldn't be surprised if fans were like, you know what? I love watching this at home. Like I've been going yeah. to all these games. I love watching it at home. Maybe well, let, let's, changes everything. I mean, this is an interesting question. I was on the phone with a friend the other day who is, is a business owner. And he was saying, you know, a lot of his business is face to face. And I was asking him like, so what are you doing? So, and this comes to the NFL too. Like this is a great opportunity for innovation but it's also a great opportunity to take stock in what people value, right? And we've become so, like, we've become so privileged in some sense. Like, like I haven't seen you. I've, I've seen some of my best friends in months, right? Like, Thank I work you. with you, but I don't, like, I don't get to <laughs> hang out with you. I don't get to, like, make fun of, like, your shirt. I don't get to, like, do, and, you know, we, like, we forget how much we value those things. What happens in the end, like what happens when NFL, like we, everything sort of the dust settles and we realize what we value. We probably value going to a game and the atmosphere more than we think. And mm -hmm. so will people pay a premium? It's like the college, college model, right? Like a lot of students are probably happy with online college, but then there's a huge fraction of them that really like that experience. And now they'll be willing to pay a premium for it. NFL, like a lot of us like to watch the games you know, seven at a time at the office, but there are probably tons of people who are like, look, I've had my season tickets for years. And I didn't realize how much of a value I was getting. And yeah. so maybe, you know, th there's a differentiated price model there. So I, I think that this is an interesting time to innovate, but it's also an interesting time to take a step back and look at the existing things that we value, but took for granted over the past, you know, decade. It's a good point. It is a very good point. Um, I do need to give, uh, we'll get into this offensive line stuff because you wrote a cool article on it i have to give a shout out to uh my sister gabriella who's watching live she she says hi uh, she's a big fan of yours eric she thinks i kind of suck but she's a big fan of everyone but but me on the podcast uh, she's in the hospital right now she's a fighter she's uh she's making some moves wow. so just wanted to give a shout out to people who are actually doing uh, good things today, um, and are and are showing strength. I'm gonna pretend to work out and pretend to show strength at some point, and it's not gonna come very close. What What is your workouts? So the people want to know, George, because <laughs> you know, I mean, I look, I I'm older, I'm a little you bought a bike, but I but I can still dunk. Yeah, I'm I'm let's say I'm a five out of ten. You're probably you're probably a what a nine and a half, nine point seven five doesn't, out of ten. What is like your it. What is fitness wise? What is your, what is your secret right now? <laughs> uh, you know, not being super fit. Uh, I was going to make a joke and say, I've just been following a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, fitness influencers on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> there, there's just so few of them out there. Influencers, as I'm going to call them from now on, <laughs> you know, uh, just, just following the, the vegan way. No, I'm not a vegan. Um, and I, you're like I the opposite. Really, you're kind of Joe Rogan in your uh, your meat I consumption. Do. Yeah, I eat a lot of a lot of meat. Um, honestly, what I've been doing is trying to get outside. I've been doing yoga uh, every day. I don't have any weights, um, and I've been trying to do uh, something between forty and forty five minutes twice a day. And uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot of jumping, a lot of sprinting, uh, a lot of body weight stuff. It's kind of a challenge. I'm excited I, to get back into a gym. I can tell you one of the reasons I bought a bike this week and I've apparently. Why, why don't we say, I wanted to ask you, I want you to tell your bike story. Why don't we save it for the end? Okay. 
because but I the, think it is pretty funny. The people, the people in Madeira, Ohio, are really struggling with the idea of a you know six foot three, two hundred forty pound former tight end running sprints up the street. Uh, so th- this has been good times for everybody. Here's the thing. I put blinders on. I do not care what <laughs> anyone thinks of my workouts. It's for me. Right. If you want to judge, You're the only per- you'd be the only person with self-awareness in D.C. anyway. There you go. This is, this is kind of true. Um, here's my question. So offensive line is a very nuanced you know, world. And I think it's very easy to get into – conversations that get prickly very quickly. You wrote an article on pff.com about how much should we value offensive line coaches? And oftentimes you'll hear, okay, this offensive line coach, he's no longer there. What can we expect? Are we overvaluing offensive line coaching? I think in most cases, yes. Um, and and I one of our friends, Jeff Schwartz, messaged me and said, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that you can't account for is this idea of development. Um, and I agree with that. But what, what I've seen in the data is there are some offensive line coaches that generally oversee great offensive lines. So Bill mm-hmm. Callahan, Dante Skarnecchia, who just retired. I mean, Skarnecchia's offensive lines were like among coaches that had 10 or more years were like a third of a win more than anybody else per year. So there's obviously these outliers, but what I try to do is say, okay, you know, given the existing strength of the offensive line, let's take a, let's, let's look at a coaching change and what happens. And generally speaking, the existing talent along that offensive line, and then how many offensive linemen are returning from one season to the next basically swamps out any sort of change uh, offensive line coaching change would 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 imply um so you you'd imagine and we do see it sometimes bad offensive lines if you look at the graph on the on the article bad offensive lines change offensive line coaches more than good offensive lines do but most of the most of the increase or decrease in performance is due simply to regression and not to the causal effects of an offensive line coach change yeah it you know in some ways so I read the article a couple of times and the first takeaway is like, Oh wow. You know, it's, it's way less meaningful than maybe I'd thought, but then you look at it and you go, no, maybe this kind of makes sense. There shouldn't be 15 great offensive line coaches. It's hard. Like you've got to have, you've got to be really great in my opinion to make a, a big difference, a noticeable difference when you, when you need five guys to play, you know, at an average to above average level, and you have all these other things that can come into play, right? Just, you know, just your quarterback being good could, could make a huge difference. Right. And so Dante Scarnecchia being that guy makes sense. Like there's, there's one guy it's been noticeable. It's, it's like if Dante Scarnecchia was like well below average, then I'd be like, this is interesting. I'm a little confused here. But the fact that he has continually gotten well above league average out of an offensive line that you pointed out in the article has not had well above average continuity. That, that is cool to see because I, I don't think you should have seven, eight guys that are getting well above average offensive line is a super tricky position. And so for there to be one guy that sets himself apart, 
kind of makes sense to me and it's the right guy. Yeah. Well, and that, that's it. Yeah. That, and that the question then becomes, so uh, our friend Jack Dufflin, who, you know, follows the show, you was like, well, Bill Callahan, the second best guy in the list. And now he's on Cleveland this year. Should we expect Cleveland who, because of the offensive line a season ago, and, you know, frankly, because their quarterback was inexperienced and wasn't able to do as much, uh, you know, as he did as a rookie, should we expect bigger things out of the Browns? In my estimation, the answer should be, okay, like he's probably not going to harm the offensive line. Right, right. But any, but any sort of improvement along the offensive line is probably going to be due to the Jedrick Willses of the world mm-hmm. as well as the development of Baker Mayfield. So I think Bill Callahan will have some effect but all that effect is going to be traced statistically in, in reference to quarterback change in reference to regression, just by the Steelers defensive front, the Ravens defense, like, you know, just all the statistical like inertia is probably going to overcome anything that happens to Bill Callahan. Now we've seen it. Like one of the reasons I wrote this piece was I was talking to our friend, Matthew Collar about, you know, when, the Vikings have sort of had off and on offensive lines and their offensive line coach, uh, Sperano died in training camp of 2018. And that was like the one year in the middle where they could not like piece it together. Mm-hmm. There, there are, t- but the, the issue is, is the differences is like anecdotes don't make statistical statistically significant, uh, corpuses of data. Right. So that, that's that's really a tricky thing, and it, and it's a fun discussion. And as somebody who played tight end and who had an offensive line coach, I can tell you those guys matter to me, even if they didn't matter necessarily statistically over the past twenty years in the NFL. Well, so that's that's the, the point that I was going to make is whenever your so say the offensive line improves in Cleveland, in the media you can give all of the credit at different times to different people. Right? Like you can be like, hey, we're going to talk about Bill Callahan. I'm going to give all the credit to Bill Callahan in this segment. Two weeks later, you're talking about Jedrick Wills playing great. I'm going to give all the credit to Jedrick Wills. End of the season, you're doing a Baker Mayfield piece. It's like his leadership was tremendous. All of the improvement goes to Baker Mayfield. And that's fine. Like it doesn't feel like, you know, you're doing some huge injustice. When you think about it mathematically, though, and when you do a statistical analysis, you have to divvy it up. Like you can't do that. You can't give. Mm-hmm. 300% of the credit, you, you have to divide 100%. And it's just simply, it makes sense that players being good on the field is and having good players is going to outweigh the, the noticeable difference that a coach and changing a coach may have. And there's, of course, still entanglement. You know, there you did a very nice job of teasing that apart. But there are just going to be you're, – you're just not going to be to un, able to untangle it as much as you might want uh, to appease everyone. So it's where – you know, the direction the data points you in says these things. It's, it doesn't make sense to reject it entirely because of an anecdote um, and to understand why there might be a difference between what you'd say on TV and what you'd actually get out of a statistical analysis. You mentioned uh, the Browns, though. And this is a perfect segue into uh, the AFC North. So um, I think the way that we started off the AFC East is a great way to start off the AFC North because I similarly, in asking myself what was the most surprising thing about 2019, had like three or four things that, that came to mind. 
And I'm curious, what was your most surprising thing about the AFC North? My most surprising thing about the AFC North is the fact that the Steelers in a 10 game stretch won eight games last year. Um, despite <laughs> the fact that every single one of the quarterbacks, now Big Ben obviously played a game, he played a terrible game and like a series or two, but all three of their quarterbacks were below replacement level last season in terms of PFF war. Their wide receivers were 26th or something in ter- or 29th or something in terms of war generated as a group. Um, they on offense that you look at their most valuable players and you had to get to player nine before you, you saw their most valuable offensive player. Yep. They won, they won eight games based almost entirely on defense. And to me, that was probably the most surprising thing. I thought you were going to end up with, with the Ravens. Um, so that it bums me out, but also we picked basically the same thing which was that the Steelers would have made the playoffs without a, a single good offensive player, basically. Yes. Uh, you know, like they would have made the playoffs in, under the new playoff system. Um, and, you know, when we, look, when we look at each team and you go, okay, who's the most valuable player on this team? It's really hard for a team that doesn't suck to not have a quarterback as their most valuable player. Like we talked about this uh, on Monday or on Tuesday with the, the Dolphins. Like Ryan Fitzpatrick was valuable. Right now the team sucked, but like the quarterback play is still that important. And the Steelers don't have a quarterback anywhere near it. I mean, the, you mentioned the ninth guy, but that's James Washington. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's not a quarterback. And so when you start to look ahead to this year and you go, okay, well, who are some teams that last year maybe were, you know, kind of a, an afterthought? that can make a huge jump. The Steelers have to be at the top of this list. And, and I'm still interested in whether we should, because you mentioned the defense and defense is so unstable from season to season. So you look at the betting markets, for example, and uh, you know, the betting markets have the Steelers as the second most likely team to win the AFC North. And that, surprises me a little bit because of all the changes that have happened for the good in Cleveland with, you know, offensive line um, uh, kind of refresh there and a new coach and the Steelers are the team that people, you know, are more, uh, they're ahead of the Browns there. Does that make sense to you? Or do you still think the Browns should be, um, should be ahead of the Steelers? I, I, you know, I think the Browns have, I think the Browns are moving in a direction that's better than the direction the Steelers are moving. Um, and here, and here's why I think, you know, when you look at Stefanski, Stefanski represents such a come up over uh, Freddie kitchens, our boy, our boy. Um, that to me, when you look at Mayfield, you know, Mayfield still was worth 1.7 wins above replacement last year. I mean, there were so many things that went wrong, but he, I think overcame some things, uh, you know, and that team wasn't great, but they beat, you know, for example, they beat Buffalo, which is a playoff team. Um, you know, they, they've had, they had some, you know, they had a, a tough loss against Seattle, which again was a playoff team. They beat the had Steelers. Baltimore's number, to be honest. They beat Baltimore by, by, and then they had Baltimore on the ropes. They were in the lead in that game into the second quarter. Uh, and then, um, you know, they, they, there was a lot good going there and then they lost their best defensive player in the middle of the season. 
Um, you know, they, they, they built the defense from back to front. You know, they, they've done a lot of things that we like. And last season was just tanked by the fact that the quarterback got into so many bad habits, probably as a result of the fact that Freddie Kitchens, like, did him absolutely zero favors, uh, you know, the entire time. Um, so, uh, no, I'm bullish on them. I, you know, I'm, I, I, I like that. Whereas Pittsburgh, like, people don't realize that Pittsburgh, when you look at Big Ben, he, he led the league in passing yards in 2018. And everybody says, well, you know, that's a good thing. But they don't say the same thing about Jameis Winston. I think I knew James I, is going to come up here. Yeah, and I think that that and, – and those two things, like, we, we, we anchor. But Big Ben graded like crap in 2018. Then they lost Antonio Brown. And I know that they got Deontay Johnson and James Washington to emerge a little bit last year. But he comes in here and – you know, he played like crap early on last year, got hurt, comes back. What is he going to be like, right? What is he going to do? Um, there's just a lot of questions. And then, yes, you're not going to get turnovers on the defensive side of the ball the way that you did a season ago, just statistically speaking. Um, so, I don't know, man. I, I do think the win totals here are a little low for us because they do, as, as we have in the show notes here, like they have some of the easiest schedules in the league. Like Baltimore has literally – the easiest schedule in the NFL yep. for PFF Elo. Cleveland's got an easier schedule in Pittsburgh uh, slightly. And then Cincinnati has the toughest schedule a bunch, but they're still only 22. I think you put all those together and I think Cleveland laps Pittsburgh to a little, to a degree and people are going to be surprised by it. Okay. But I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. So Baker Mayfield has a, had a really interesting year last year. And I was surprised to see this. His grade from a clean pocket ranked 26th of 35. His grade under pressure was 5th out of 35. And what we know is that grade from a clean pocket is stable and grade under pressure is not. And so if you see that grade under pressure regress back to the mean pretty strongly. And, you know, I would expect him to, you know, be a little better from a clean pocket because he's got a better coach there. But that, that should give you some, you know, there should be a decent amount of pause, I think, with Baker Mayfield, as much as we are fans of him coming out of, out of college. And there's this, man, it's just like the Cleveland juju. Like, they just can't, they just can't stop Juju plays for the around. Steelers, though. Right. So I, I, I don't get. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of like, it's, it's an apt word because of the fact that like Juju is on the Steelers and the Steelers seem to have the opposite, which is they figure out ways to win more than they should. And the Browns figure out ways to lose more than they should. And I can't get away from that. And I think about some of the pieces for um, the Steelers. And so uh, here are the, here are the odds. It's, it's Baltimore minus one ninety. Pittsburgh plus 350, Cleveland plus 450, and the Bengals, who we'll talk about here in a second, 22 to 1. And if I look at some of the things about the Steelers, when I look at this division, I think about two wide receivers in in Marquise Brown and and Deontay Johnson, who I think whichever one of those, or maybe both of them, matures quite a bit, could go a long way to, you know, being a non-quarterback that determines what happens in this division. Um, and the Steelers have Juju Smith-Schuster and James Washington. James Washington had his best season last year. And Juju was apparently pretty banged up and had quarterbacks who should not be starting in the NFL. So 
if you bring those guys back in, I think Deontay Johnson forced the most missed tackles of any wide receiver last year. I think he was tied with Debo. Like that has the makings of a pretty darn good offense where all of a sudden you look at the Browns and you go, yeah, I know they have more talent, but am I really sure they're going to put it all together? At least I've seen Big Ben do it before. I've seen Juju Smith-Schuster do it before. I've seen the Steelers do it before. I have not seen the Browns do it before. Ever. And And, and I love their draft too. Like Jedrick Wills, Grant Delpit. Like those are fantastic. I really like what Stefanski does. And I'm curious, you know, what you think will happen. Do you think that Stefanski is going to run a lot of what they did in Minnesota in terms of heavy personnel, a lot of play action, or was that more a result of their personnel that they had there and what Zimmer wanted to do? What do you think? That's a good question because yeah, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I would say I, and maybe I'm being a, maybe I'm being a, an apologist here, but I think like, I think that the fundamentals of that offense are good and the bad things. So this sounds stupid, but like the, the bad things associated with the Vikings offense were attributed to Zimmer in my estimation. So the running too much on early downs, the uh, you know, generally speaking, just that really just like dumping early downs, just the running. Yeah. It it was Zimmer and the, the play callingness, the fact that even though they did that stuff, they were still effective. I feel like is Stefanski. Does that make sense? Like, yep. so if he lose, if he gets under the restriction, he gets away from the restrictions of Zimmer. Maybe he's still running a lot of that Shanahanian, like the Kubiakian, uh, you know, play actions, the boots, the stuff that makes life easy on a quarterback. Um, you know, the stuff that made like Matt Schaub, Sage Rosenfels, all those guys actually successful could work for Mayfield, who's a far more talented player. Mm-hmm. And maybe they don't dump as many expected points on early downs because there's not some head coach over there saying, look, Kevin, like we got to be tougher. Like the toughness quotient hasn't been reached yet. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, you know, I mean, and, and it's not so much in a vacuum, like, like, let's say, let's say that he was replacing an average coach. Maybe I'm a little less optimistic. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's replacing Freddie Kitchens, who quote said, like basically said, look, I don't scheme up plays to, to to try to fool people. I just play football, which is like the biggest cell phone of all time. I mean, he had Todd Monken on the staff, and Monken's like he made Brian Fitzpatrick and Jameis look really good in 2018, and they don't even consult him. He doesn't call the plays. He doesn't do like it was a mess. So you're not if Stefanski's like a one you know, one standard deviation better than mean, or even a half a standard deviation above the mean, that might not be good enough for Cleveland to overcome everything, to overcome history. But Freddie Kitchens is like a minus two, right? So relative to that, like you're looking at, I think something that could be a lot better in Cleveland. And they weren't that far away a season ago. They were a game or two out of playoff contention for most of the season. You know what I'm saying? Like that to me is why I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about the Browns. It's where they're coming from, not necessarily what they currently yeah. are. So here's, here's an interesting thought. If Stefanski were so great, why isn't he the head coach in Minnesota right now? Because I, there's just got to be, it's I mean, got to be. They beat, they beat New Orleans in the playoffs. That's is that really it? it? Yeah. Is that really it? If they, they lose, yeah. Think about that. 
if Dalvin Cook's knee doesn't hit the ground and Von Bell's touchdown counts, like Zimmer's the coach of the Cowboys and and Stefanski's the coach of the Vikings and we're we're, the whole thing has changed up. Okay, I I mean that that that's kind of what I was asking because if if he was you know because I've heard um, you know from different people that well it was you know Kubiak was a huge influence and Stefanski not as much and Zimmer you know, it, it was Kubiak and Zimmer who were doing things and Stefanski was there looking good on the sideline, you know, and was the face of things and whatever. Um, handsome dude, by the way, which is you, whenever you can up the handsomeness quotient, it's important. Well, but, it, and again, his play calling and handsomeness, I think is relative to the man that was there before. The, the, well, certainly the combination though is important. I, by the way, this is a quick aside. One of my favorite um, like late night, skits i think it's jimmy kimmel does the like this handsomeness club skit and he gets all these really you know good looking people to be in this club with him but he is somehow like the arbiter of handsome (laughs) and like sits as the chair and i forget who it is but he like kicks someone out of the club because they're not handsome enough (laughs) it's it's really funny um and uh it, but but getting back to my point, which is, I think that Stefanski, as long as he brings in, and you hit the nail on the head here, as long as he brings in an innovation component, which is, hey, what did we do well? Like, let's just learn from what players have performed well in and implement that. Like, it's not, you know, there's a certain part of it which just isn't rocket science. It's just putting the situation in your favor. And I, this is what I look at, and I talked about this midway through the season last year when Kitchens was basically doing nothing to help Mayfield out. So if you look at heavy personnel, so basically, you know, um, two or fewer wide receivers and looking only at early downs, Baker Mayfield has a 91 passing uh, PFF passing grade over the past two seasons. If you look at first and second down um, in, in light personnel, three or more wide receivers, 73 passing grade, 19 uh, touchdowns, 20 interceptions, basically the same big time throw. Uh, no, I guess it's a little bit different, but um, 7.2 yards per attempt, almost eight yards per attempt when he's out of a heavy set, um, 14 touchdowns, three interceptions. So like uh, big time throw ratio, 20 to four um, to turnover worthy plays. I, I don't know if any of that was English. The main point is that, when he's been given an opportunity to throw out of those heavier sets and that, you know, you'd assume that's more play action mm-hmm. that allows more time for um, you know, for you in a clean pocket for your receivers to get open. Yeah. And it also, it also deceives the defense a little bit, right? It dictates defensive personnel and gives you an opportunity to get some mismatches mismatches. And they just didn't do a lot of that last year with kitchens. Stefanski just looks at those numbers and goes, oh, yeah, I'm just going to do more of that. Like, all of a sudden, you just put the situations in your favor and you can be really successful. What, what was one of the reasons the Vikings were good last year? One of the reasons the Vikings were good was because they played a schedule where they had, like, six backup quarterbacks. You know, they faced <laughs> Chase Daniel. They lost to Chase Daniel. They faced Matt Moore. They lost to Matt Moore. But then they had David Blau. They had Keenum Haskins. They had, uh, you know, repeatedly, right? Like, the Daniel Jones coming out, like, first start. And what did that give them? That gave them the opportunity to run. That gave them the opportunity to play from ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Like if they 
if they had that run pass ratio for their schedule this year, which is one of the things I'm predicting, they're going to suck because they're not, they have to score every possession this year, right? Because right. they face, you know, they face a good set of quarterbacks that they didn't face last year. Cleveland having the 27th most difficult schedule in the NFL plays to Stefanski's what wishes here. So you look at their schedule after you, you know, you go to Baltimore on opening day, but then you have Cincinnati at home. You have Washington at home. You have, you have a couple teams where, you know, you can get out ahead of them. You can play the offense the way that you want to. And then, you know, Mayfield can have success. You have some games here. You have Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Las Vegas in the October month. Again, more games where you don't have to score every possession. And, and, you, and especially considering their defense is probably going to be better this season because they have some, you know, uh, you know, hangers on that are gone. They're going to have some opportunities there. Then in the second half of the year, you get Houston, you get Jacksonville, you get the New York Giants, the New York Jets. Like, there's a ton of ton on that schedule that's favorable to them. And what is that going to do? That's going to play the offense the way that they want to, which is two wide receivers, a tight end, maybe two tight ends if Ninjoku plays, uh, the running backs in Hunt uh, and Chubb. Like, they're going to be playing from ahead. They're going to be playing from a position of strength a lot which is exactly what those Shanahanian offenses, the Kubiakian offenses, like where they thrive. No, it's, it's a great point. And it, it's speaking of teams that played from ahead a lot, the only team in the NFL last year, actually over <laughs> the last four years, to run fewer than 100 plays when trailing in the first half of games. In other words, we're always winning the game in the first half were the Baltimore Ravens. And that is, a, that is a testament also to how good of a team they were, right? But it, the way that I think of it is, yes, that's impressive. Yes, they can still be good, very good to start games. And yes, they have the weakest schedule in the NFL. But it means that you know a little bit less about them when things don't go their way, right? Which we saw in the playoffs. And so, you know, the Ravens are here. We've talked about how their, their win total is 11 and a half. We have their win total in our simulations about 10 and a half. And so that's a bet we would make. Are, is their regression something that actually scares you in terms of them winning this division? Yeah, it, even though, so there's an interesting way to think about this betting wise. I think minus 190 presents a value in the division. Yes. I actually can't <laughs> find that anywhere else, but, but bet online, you might be able to find it somewhere else. But the, a combination where you might want to bet the Ravens is win the AFC North at minus 190 and then under 11 and a half because there's mm-hmm. like a real good chance that they could do both. Yep. Um, and but there's, you know, uh, and you, you sort of win one or lose, you know, uh, type of thing. Um, for me, when I look at the Ravens, I think to myself, what's different? So they're clearly one of two elite teams in the AFC. What's the difference between them and the other elite team in the AFC? And you look at sort of the, the distribution of their war. You know, after Lamar Jackson, you get Earl Thomas, Marlon Humphrey, Marshall Yonda, who retired, uh, Ronnie Stanley, and Marcus Peters. They're all sort of clustered in there at like a 20th of a win. You know what I'm saying? There's not, they're not a stars and scrubs team. They are a, very, a collection of very good players teams. And when you collect the very good players together and you put the correlations in, that gives you 14 and two. Now, I don't know. There's a rumor that they're looking to cut Earl Thomas. Obviously, Marshall Yonda retires and they replace him. Ben Bradelson, a draft pick, they had to always look good in our projections. So 
they're a smart team that replaces good players with good players. But if some of those things they don't stole work, Calais Campbell, they stole Calais Campbell. They they got uh, Derek Wolf, who you know hates PFF, but has been an okay player at times in his career. Um, if he some of those things don't, don't work <laughs> out, if some of those things don't work out, like the fall off, I think could be bigger. You know what I'm saying? And that's yeah. why when I look at the when I look at the Ravens, I think they're clearly the class of this division. But A, the division's a lot better than it was a season ago. And B, uh, there's so many more things that can go wrong relative to expectation that can go right. And I would say this, and this is – I'm doing something I'm trying not to do, which is jump on the Browns bandwagon. But I have to say this. The Ravens were so far and away the smartest team in this division last year. The Browns have a chance to, to close that gap. They have a lot of people that are going to think mathematically in all parts of the organization, in team building and in, in decision-making in game. So that can be an, another edge that they had so clearly above the division that narrows. I want to get back to the point you made at the beginning because I think this is huge for the Ravens. So uh, you mentioned you know, how their war was distributed. And for people that may be listening for the first time, wins above replacement – is valuing what a player did uh, across positions. So it, it says it allows us to look at, you know, a wide receiver versus a quarterback and defensive tackle versus a guard and whatever. And if you want to read more on it, you go to pff.com. But you mentioned how void of value they had at the wide receiver position. And to me, this is all about Marquise Hollywood Brown. The guy was electric. He just couldn't get on the field. He played less than 400 uh, pass snaps last year, receiving snaps last year. When he was on the field, he was really freaking good. His pass rating when targeted was, I think, 134, maybe 135. Um, dude is absolutely electric. If he can stay on the field and he gets an opportunity with Lamar Jackson now in this offense for a second year, the shift of where the, the, the value happens for the Ravens could, could simply shift, right? It was like, okay, we have these tight ends. Like Mark Andrews is all of a sudden a downfield threat. He had the most uh, deep catches for them, 20-plus yards downfield, you know, which is hilarious. Right. But that could just shift, right? And we could see, okay, Calais Campbell comes in, and he is an absolute stud. And so while they lose some of these pieces here, like Marshall Yanda and maybe Earl Thomas, they could pick it up because they've been smart. You know, Patrick Queen comes in. Yeah. Um, provide some value. So uh, it's not, I think the way that you said it is perfect. I would make that same bet them to win the division and under 11 and a half. Yeah. It stops. I mean, there's some, like I actually saw it on bet online. I went to some of the books that I look at and use, I've seen it anywhere from minus 250 to minus 220. Those are not values. Like mm-hmm. it's probably up to minus 200 where it's a value, but yeah, just make sure that, you know, you're getting something below minus 200 there. And I think it's a, it's a good thing. Um, 11 and a half uh, as a win total, I like a lot more, obviously, because you're getting more, you know, uh, closer. You're not, you're getting like minus 130, depending upon the spot, but you're getting closer to even odds there. Um, yeah, you're basically, you're basically looking for both bets to be plus, plus you know, EV. Plus EV. And so we have the Ravens. So here, our simulations have the Ravens winning the division 67% of the time, the Browns 15, the Pittsburgh Steelers 13. And the Cincinnati Bengals, 6% of the time. The Bengals are kind of frisky to me. 
And if you were to say, what's, what's the biggest question mark that you have with the Bengals? To me, it's Zach Taylor and the coaching staff. Yeah, and I, I've been on Cincinnati radio a few times since the simulation came out. And, and I'm, I think the Bengals are – the Bengals are a team that can make the playoffs this year. Agree. Uh, yeah. And, and the only – to me, the question marks surrounding the Bengals, I'm willing to take last season and throw it out for Zach Taylor. I don't okay. – I, I have I, – I, I don't – you know, I, I didn't come out of the season thinking it was great. Um, in fact, they came out of the season thinking he wasn't very good, but you sort of take the collection of, of things that he had to deal with from his best player, the best player on the team, not playing and, but, but being inactive the whole year. So you're sort of like, you never come to grips with the fact he's out for the season. Um, you know, obviously the quarterback situation, you draft a guy in the fourth round, you give him a shot sucks. Okay. Move on. Like, I think that's a smart move, right? They yep. did a great, you know, once it was clear Dalton wasn't their future, but the team played hard every game. They they came back from two touchdowns down against the Dolphins. Uh, they blew out, you know, Cleveland in the last game of the season, or they, they won by multiple scores the second half of the season. They had a good game against the Jets. Uh, a Jets team that won six out of their last eight games. One of those two losses was to Cincinnati here, you know, at, at Paul Brown. Like, there's there was fight in that team that, you know, I – I, I think that there's something in Zach Taylor. The thing, the question mark for me when I look at the Bengals is without, with a shortened off season, with a lot of acquisitions, if this was a full off season, I'd be much more bullish on them. With Trey Waynes, Mackenzie Alexander, Vaughn Bell, Logan Wilson, the three linebacker, Akeem Davis-Gaither, uh, DJ Reader to go with Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins. That's a lot of talent. You got to get that talent to assimilate though. And that's the problem. And then you look at their offensive line. They acquired a lot of offensive linemen. They get Jonah Williams back. Their their entire, uh, you know, offensive line. Like the players that were below replacement level for them were like the Michael Jordans, which I know, you know, take off the headphones, Mike. But the, the all the, you know, all the bad players for them were on the offensive line and in the defensive secondary. And they rectified a lot of those. They get A.J. Green, T. Higgins, and obviously Joe Burrow. Like there's a lot to like there. I mean, when you're a Browns or a Bengals fan, sorry, you should be pretty uh, optimistic about the team moving forward. Yeah, I, I mean, um, what is their win total at right now? Is five and a half. Five and a half. I mean, yeah, I so think I, over is just an easy. Like to me, over overs are not great plays in win totals, but for some of these teams that have talent and play yeah. r- below average schedules in terms of difficulty, go for it. You know. No, like, I, I was going to say that's my unless it had moved up that was going to be my favorite um, bet I think out of all of these uh, aside from the you know what we just talked about with the Ravens which is the Bengals could be a pretty decent team this year and six wins does not seem out of the realm of possibility and I, my question marks with Zach Taylor are really because of what I've seen in Los Angeles like we have not seen we just talked about innovation and how important it is to change your offense to suit what is working and like what your players can do and what opportunities they have. And the Los Angeles Rams are in like a scary situation where they really haven't, you know, changed what Jared Goff has been asked to do. And yet his situations are changing dramatically. Like his average time to throw dropped from 2.85 to 2.65. They were still asking him to wait back there for 2.8, right? Like that's a problem. And if they're unable to take advantage of what Joe Burrow can do well, then, then that would be scary. That being said, 
for all of this, hey, the offseason is shortened, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like the person I'm least worried about with that is Joe Burrow. Like this guy is already played like a professional last year in college. The dude is certainly taking this offseason seriously. Like there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. And yeah. It, like I'm not worried about that as much as I am just how the coaches are actually going to to run this offense, which is my big If question. he's good, if Joe Burrow is good, we're going to we're going to see it almost right away. I mean there's there's almost nothing in in there, there's nothing in my opinion that's, you know, there 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 aren't that many ifs with him, right? I you know, the the, the one question mark is, you know, Joe Brady comes in, asks him exactly what he wants to do. He says, okay, I want to run five wide and be able to, you know, and, you know, have five man protections and stuff like that. And, you know, the Bengals are a little bit more of a, like, you know, McVeighian offense yep. and, and they're not like accustomed to that. But I mean, Zach Taylor has got to be thinking, look, my, my, like, I'm going to be here less less long for a shorter period of time than burrow is so i better make this thing work and i i don't know man i i reserve i reserve a little skeptic skepticism like i'm pushing the skepticism aside and thinking okay zach taylor is going to make this work because you know he, he sort of has to it's burrow burrow is the face of the franchise he's gonna be here a lot longer than basically everybody else well here's um i mean i i totally agree with you there so the the Bengals to make the playoffs uh, are, are plus 575, so about 15% um, chance. And we have, in our simulations, them making the playoffs 23% of the time, which is sexual and violent. And, yep. and this is going to cause me a great deal of heartbreak in five months when I'm looking out my window in Cincinnati. God willing, we're back there. And just looking at an empty stadium, you know, on the first weekend of the playoffs. Well, here, uh, here's the question, though. With seven teams now making the playoffs, right? Mm -hmm. These betting markets now, futures markets are probably less sharp than game to game sides and totals, as, as we know. But, you know, the initial odds are obviously set with seven playoff teams understood. But the, the betting into that, right, is it, I think that there's probably going to be some bias, right? And I don't know it if it's high or low, but I think for a team like the Bengals, you look at their odds to make the playoffs and the average better is just like, no, no, no. You know what I mean? And they're betting so, into that. I think game. it's both. I think that there is bias on both sides for a team. That's decent. There's bias in the, Oh, well, guess what? There's seven teams that can make the playoffs right. this year. This team is actually decent and we always want to be optimistic. And for teams that are bad, it's like, this team sucks. So I'm not even, I know there's seven, but there's all these other good teams ahead of them. You know, there's right. not, there's not as much of an acceptance of variance there. I think that's spot on. So, so, so then I think for teams like, so that I wrote this up for, for PFF.com teams like the Jets, the Dolphins and the, uh, and the Bengals, like, I think there's opportunity there. And, and, you know, and if you bet each one of those, you only need one of them to make the playoffs for it to be, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I mean, yes, you only need one of those teams to make the playoffs for it to be positive. Um, so do it. I, you know, and the thing is, is we all like to see, like, look, man, like when you look at the AFC or the, sorry, the NFC last year, who are the two teams in the NFC championship game? They were the four win San Francisco 49ers yep. from a season ago and the six win or yeah, they had a tie six win Green Bay Packers from a season ago. So like the AFC was relatively like confined, but 
like that doesn't mean it has to be every single season. No, that's a great point. Okay. I have two um, quick hitter questions to get out of here on the AFC North. Um, Which team is the best three years from now? Uh, well, and I, I put in our notes here, you, Eric, you have to say something bad about the Ravens. You can't just like slob them the entire time, but we did, we did not, we did yeah. not slob on the Ravens. I, yeah. I love the Ravens. And I thought we were, look, there's few, there's few teams that I enjoy as much as the Ravens, few players that I like as much as Lamar Jackson. Um, I don't think we slobbed on them by any stretch. I think, I think you could throw Pittsburgh out because okay. I, I'm with I think you. Tom, Tomlin earned it. So here's it. Tomlin earned himself how many years last year? Like four additional years? Yeah, probably <laughs> like, life. I think he was probably the coach of the year last year. Um, but there's nothing there after Big Ben, you know? And we know the quarterback controls everything. And we know Big Ben specifically controls a lot more than most co- most, most quarterbacks, given right. that he calls his own plays. and protects. Right, but but Aaron Rodgers will be the QB there in like two years, so. Right. I mean, that that's something you can't foresee. But – I think Pittsburgh, you throw them out. I don't see – I'm not high on Pittsburgh moving forward. Okay. Cleveland, the ownership there, it's just – it's tricky, right? But yep. Cleveland has a lot going for it. To me, it's between the Bengals and the, the Baltimore Ravens. Wow. And here's the thing. We go to the PF, go to PFF.com. I wrote an article about quarterbacks and, you know, paying quarterbacks versus, you know, paying certain other parts of the team. Last season – the, the Ravens only put 33% of their salary cap into the offense. If, if Lamar Jackson continues to play well, they're going to have to put more into the offense, which what does that mean? That means less into the defense. That means less of playing from ahead, like what you described during the, during the first half of games. That means, you know, more of the parameter space for Lamar Jackson is being searched and probably more uncertainty. I think it's the Ravens, but I think it's a lot closer than, than we think. Okay. I, I, I mean, obviously the betting favorite should be the Ravens, but um, I'm going to make a case for the Browns in that we are drastically undervaluing Baker Mayfield right now because of what last That's season was like. Yep. Our guy, that was my next point was that they brought in people that, um, that we know and trust a ton. I think the hiring of Quezzy was fantastic, uh, but overall they've just done that through and through. Mm-hmm. And if I look at this, if I just say who has the most talent, the Browns have had the most high draft picks. Like there's, it shouldn't be surprising that they have a ton of talent on this team. So uh, I'll take a long shot in, in the Browns. Um, I think that's really smart. And you know, the, the question is always Mayfield, right? But at some yep. level we have to believe that Mayfield is as good as we thought he was, which could be the case or could not be the case. Might not be and, the case. And I still think that, you know, as much as we are prisoners of the moment and Lamar Jackson is freaking insane, like there are question marks with Lamar Jackson too. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll find out, I think, a lot more this year. Um, okay, last question. Um, the most important player in this division for 2020 is who? The most important player? Yeah. It's Lamar. It's a different answer that I had than I had for. It's a different answer than I had for the AFC East because the AFC East, in my opinion, is wide open. Kind of wide open, yeah. This division is not wide open, um, and the only way that it becomes wide open is if Lamar Jackson regresses substantially. And so that, in my opinion, that's why he's the most important and most valuable player in this division. 
I like it. I think the most important player, I really wanted to go non-quarterback here. Um, so I'm going to go with Odell uh, because now it's hard to make a case for a non-QB, but he has this, he has the potential to get in line and be a great teammate and really help Baker Mayfield both on the field and off the field. And if he can do that, I mean, he's so good. He's such a good football player. Like, I know I've talked about Mar- Marquise Brown and Deontay Johnson, like Juju Smith-Schuster. Odell Beckham Jr. is the best receiver in this division by miles. Like, the dude is insanely good. If he can get back to that, that, that can flip this division. It can turn – it can give Baker Mayfield the weapons to be the best uh, – to be – honestly, to be a top-five QB. So, to me, it's, it's Odell, and it's not particularly close for, uh, when, I, when I throw out the quarterbacks. Um, which I feel like I should I should do occasionally. Yeah, that that's smart. I mean, the the hard part about football is that quarterbacks matter so much, right? And and, and to make the discussion interesting, you, you have to take out quarterbacks sometimes. Yeah, to do it. But I think he's you know for a non quarterback, I think he's as close to all of the quarterbacks in the division as being the most important of probably any division out there. He um, he was the so he was a reason why a, a Giants team that had a terrible quarterback, but a decent defense in 2016 made the playoffs. Yep. And, and so he is a game changer in that regard. I think Jarvis was a little bit more valuable than him last year. He didn't play all that great. He did have a thousand yards. So it's, it's interesting. A, a guy plays poorly and still has a thousand yards. Uh, that's how good he is. Um, and, and if he could be, if he's a 1500 yard receiver this year, if he plays the Stephon Diggs role in Minnesota's offense last year with Stefanski, this team's a good team. And, um, you know, our, our, our colleague and, and pal Timo Risky wrote about like, you know, the probability that four teams make the playoffs. I think with the schedule the way that it is, 20s for every single team, um, the fact that it's legal now, you know, that we've yep. only seen it twice in NFL history, the NFC Central in 2000, or 1994 and 1997 uh, had four playoff teams. Um I think the AFC North is the most likely team to have that happen this season. And that would be a lot of fun. Yep. I'm with you there. Um, by the way, uh, Timo Riske, a full-time member of the PFF family now, which uh, I guess some people just didn't know, um, just assumed he was, but uh, right. well, he's which is a testament to the work that he does, right? right? To be like, yeah, this guy must work full-time for them because he pumps out gold left and right. Um Okay, uh, that was the AFC North. That was fun. Let's do, let's do this. Um, I was thinking about this last night because I was on radio in Denver, and they brought up a guy who I still kind of think could be a great receiver in the NFL. Who, Ashley Lilly? No, no, it's not Ashley Former Lilly. Former and? No, it's not Ashley Lilly. Um, <laughs> it's, it was Cordero Patterson. Who, um, look, I, I, I mean, I, I got into, you know, I, my introduction to being like hardcore and in, into breathing, you know, all sports, um, in addition to, to basketball, which was kind of my first sport that I played, was, was fantasy. And so I played fantasy baseball and fantasy football when I was homeschooled growing up. And so I, had, I formed this irrational love for players that were, that should have been great. And I held on to it for a long time. So Cordell Patterson is at like the top of my list, but I kind of just went through 
and made a list of players that I remember. And one of my litmus tests for this was like when I was growing up, um, cell phones with internet was like kind of just starting to be a thing. And so like you could look at the box score of a game, like in, you know, basically like the most raw form imaginable on like your flip phone, you know, like I think I had a, a razor. Um, right. And you'd like, so my litmus test is opening it, whether I would open up, I can remember opening it up in church <laughs> and like looking with bated breath, whether this player had done anything yet and always being let down. What was it like growing up on the West Coast? Cause you know, the, the, it's a, it's a monumental occasion when you check when, when you're in church and you check scores on your phone, right? Like you, yep. you cross some sort of like you and God have had some sort of understanding to that point. But in God. the West Coast, like obviously like the, the 10 o'clock games are playing while you're yes. at church, I'm assuming. Oh, so it like, was, it was so maybe, maybe that's why the, the, the West Coast gets like more of a godless, uh, you know, maybe. reputation is that you, you've had that. Whereas me, I mean, yeah, that ship has sailed for me. I'm checking in actives while I'm at church probably usually, um, but I'm not full on watching the game. You know, I, I was probably, a disaster. I mean, yeah. I, I was planning where I was going to sit in the pew relative to my mother, bless her heart. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was a proponent of like going to the 8am. Like I was the, I was one of the only kids at like <laughs> right. age 11 at age 10. that was like, Hey, can we go to like, we go to church at like seven 30. I heard this. I heard this priest gives a great homily. Right. Let's go then. <laughs> I heard the wafers taste better at seven 30 guys. Like, <laughs> You know, <laughs> that was, no, I mean, like legitimately. So I, I worked, I, I was homeschooled and I worked at a sports card and memorabilia shop where we had these fantasy leagues that were with like our highest paying customers. So basically like 40 year old dudes that, that didn't need to work a whole lot and spent all their money on sports cards. And I was like the one young kid in this group. And I was known as being the guy that, that got, all, went all in on young dudes like a year early. So like I had BJ Upton on my fantasy baseball team when he was a Durham Bull. Right. <laughs> and I was checking Durham Bull box scores every day. <laughs> so <laughs> so like crazy. so I'm going to read you some some of the players on this list. Um Cordero Patterson is is right up at the top. Yeah. Ronnie Brown was a guy that that I just was under I mean he had that one stretch but man I was all in on Ronnie Brown yeah. um Byron Leftwich wow yes and I was I was an idiot back then I did not realize that having a release that took like 15 seconds to, to actually happen was a bad thing I was just so enamored with the toughness of Byron Leftwich um no Sean Moreno I remember no shot. I actually was just watching a Denver Kansas City game from thirteen. No shot was there like running backs don't matter running back. It was great. I've saved I've saved my best though for last. I want to hear some of yours first. Okay, so this I didn't start playing fantasy football until two thousand seven, my senior year in college. But I but I always like followed it. Okay, so there are some players from like the nineties that I always thought were really good. And then you kind of like come up for water and you're like, oh, he kind of sucked. So like <laughs> the Vikings had this running back named Amp Lee that I was yes. enamored with. Former 49er. 49er. Yeah. 49er. It was Ricky Waters' backup. Came to the Vikings. 
he would have he had like 71 catches one year he had like 50 catches another year so i go watch some old vikings games i'm like oh yeah it's just because warren moon was cheeks in that game and they got behind by three touchdowns and then they he would just dump it to amp lee 17 times when they were behind which great he got all those catches but and then another one was sort of later in the growing up the vikings had this third wide receiver who is who was name was marcus robinson who was like a former he had like 1400 yards for the bears got hurt a bunch, came to the Vikings. And he was kind of like, like when I played wide receiver in high school, he was like the, like the big guy fade guy. So like down <laughs> in the red zone, he would just get the fade. Yeah. And like, now we know that fades are, fades are ass. So like, I of course didn't know, but I always overvalued him. Brad Childress cut him on Christmas Eve, which just shows like Brad Childress's like lack of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reading a room was way ahead of his time. But um, so those are two Vikings players. The, the two Chiefs players that I think that I'm like, I way overvalue is one of them's tight end Demetrius Harris, who still plays for Matt Nagy's Bears. I always thought Demetrius Harris was good. And is he the probably, next Rock? I always thought, like, I would go on these shows, like, Soren, I would go on Soren Petro's show and be like, you know, like, I know they cut Jeremy Macklin, but they got this second tight end named Demetrius Harris. And I know he can't catch, but he's athletic as hell. And like yep. Seren would like laugh me off the the, the radio. Um, and then the last one, which is sort of an interesting discussion, because I still will stand by the fact that he's the most one of the most important players in franchise history, but Alex Smith. I will always consider Alex Smith better than he probably is. And that's because, and you know, he tweeted at us the other day. If like I started being a Chiefs fan like 2010, 2011. If you have to watch Matt Castle and Brady Quinn play quarterback <laughs> and, and that team go to two and the team in 2012 had six pro bowlers, Scott Pioli's last year, who went two and 14 because their quarterback was just butt cheeks the whole time. Yep. And Alex Smith got Alex Smith won two thirds of his starts. Now I know that's not because he's awesome. It was more because of Reed, but like him just getting that team on the green and finding out that they need Tiger Woods's putt, you know, to actually yep. win the Super Bowl, I think was super important. And I think people always be like, oh, Alex Smith in like a pejorative sense. But I, I actually think Alex Smith was a very useful person for the, for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs franchise. Those are, those are good ones. Those are, Alex Smith is one that could have made my list, except that I've tried to black out. Right. I mean, he's mostly bad for the 49ers. He had like right. a season and a half where he was good. Um, okay. You always Here's, have the New Orleans playoff game, though, which he was is, just absolutely dominant. This is true. Here's my Hall of Fame. Now, I don't know if this guy actually technically can make it, but Vernon Davis should be, like, the greatest pass catcher of all time, and I don't know how he hasn't mm-hmm. been. But I was, I was of the mind that Vernon Davis was going to rewrite every record uh, in the record books for quite some time. And he was he – was, so bad early on so bad it looked it really looked bad um vernon davis is a good one for me too because like i i switched to tight end fall okay. of 05 spring of 06 well you is, you're like the same athlete which is exactly like well not no that dude <laughs> when i was like okay if i can get to 240 and run a 4-6 i'm gonna be the best division two tight end in the history of the league and i did and then but i wasn't that good and then you know because i just wasn't a good football player. But then but Vernon Davis goes to the combine and runs a four three eight or whatever. It's and you're like, insane. And and the funniest part was you no one looked back and realized 
the Vikings had a tight end named Jeff Dugan, who was like a poor man's Jim Klein sauce. Who I played remember for the team for like yeah. seven years and started over Vernon Davis in college. This slow, like high school tackle started over Vernon Davis. And it was only when Jeff Dugan decided to graduate did Vernon Davis get a shot at Maryland. And no one was like, oh, maybe that maybe that means he's just like a good athlete, not a great football player. It was it was a weird, it was a weird time. Speaking of, also on my list, Matt Jones, Jaguars wide receiver. Yes. <laughs> All in on Matt Jones. You, well, you know, he was elite at some things, but not football. Yeah. Consumption um, was a, an elite trade for him. And then uh, and then the last the last uh, couple here. So Tatum Bell makes my list. And then these two, I think, stick out in my memory more than anyone else. Benjamin Watson was a guy that, for some reason, I thought was going to be just – He had a Vernon Davis-like combine. He ran the 4-4. If you ever yes. watched that guy play football and you're like, he's not a 4-4. He's stiff as hell, but he did Bears run a 4-4. the 4-4. Yes, exactly. Um, and then the number one guy on my list is Charles Rogers. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, look, they drafted, like, remember that year, that the, the three years in a row, the Lions yes, with Matt Miller drafted three consecutive first-round wide Of receivers. course. I thought Charles Rogers, and he had, like, a three-touchdown game early on. His first on. game. Yeah, and I, I was, uh, you know, I, I was kind of an idiot back then. I was, like, three touchdowns. Like, three, it was, like, three catches, 27 yards, three yeah. touchdowns. I was like, ah, he's Meanwhile, the Messiah. Anquan Bolden was a second-round pick that ran a 4-7 and was – in that caught passes for 200 yards in that same game. And it took, it took everybody like a half a year to would be like, Oh, this guy's, this guy's like a thousand yard receiver with Josh McCown at quarterback. I mean, the uh, Charles Rogers was one of those guys that I was like peering at my phone and being like, please, please have a catch. No. Okay. <laughs> please God. Can I, can I get a catch for my boy over here? He has a, he has more broken scapulas than catches. Yeah. It's, pretty brutal anyways uh i would love to hear some people's uh so um for next week um because we've been doing this with the uh with the reviews a five-star review with a a couple of players that you irrationally love and maybe still believe in that have no business being believed in would be great i'd love to hear some of those um and we'll get you a, a free free membership or some swag um this was fun man i i enjoyed it i hope you're doing doing well over there and staying safe You've got a new backdrop, which I really like. I don't have to go upstairs to record because nobody's at my house. Nobody's here. It it is actually refreshing uh, to just, you know, kind of do everything in one spot. It keeps the house cleaner. Be safe on your bike. I will. Uh, Just just wear a helmet, strap it up. Anyways, uh, that was the forecast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Be safe, guys. Peace out.